0: You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, season one, episode
1: 17. Hi everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. In most of the world, you can count on certain features being present in higher education systems. Co-education by gender, educating your best students at home, institutions complaining about funding, students complaining about funding, but one country defies most of these expectations. In Saudi Arabia, students are still, for the most part, taught in gender segregated classes. Nearly all students receive free tuition and generous maintenance grants, and tens of thousands of top students leave the country every year at the government's expense. Saudi universities still complain about funding, if perhaps in Soda voce. That, perhaps, is the single universal constant in higher education. With me today on the show is Annalisa Pavan from Università di Padova in Italy. She's been studying Saudi higher education for many years, in particular, the way the country's most prestigious scholarship program, the scholarship of the custodian of the two holy mosques functions. And we're going to talk a lot about how the country's human resource development system is changing under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's leadership, and in particular, how the country is using study abroad as a tool for long-term economic development and diversification. But enough from me, let's listen to Annalisa. Annalisa, before we get into more recent matters, can you help us out a bit describing the Saudi system? I know it's fairly new. The oldest university only dates to the late 1950s, and most institutions are less than 20 years old, I think. It's got a large private sector, but private can sometimes mean members of the royal family. It's a complicated system. What do our listeners need to know before we jump into the main topic here?
2: Well, when talking about the higher education system in Saudi Arabia, I think we, first of all, at institutional level, we have to highlight that the Ministry of Higher Education was created in 1975, but after the death of King Abdullah huh? in 2015, the Ministry of Higher Education was merged with the Ministry of Education, okay? So what we have now in Saudi Arabia is a big, just one Ministry of Education for all, all the educational levels, okay? So, in terms of universities, King Old University was the first university to be opened in the Arabian Peninsula in Riyadh in 1957. Let's say that in 1970, in Saudi Arabia, a whole cool country, there were only three universities. Under King Abdullah, there were many openings, okay, of new universities, both public and private universities. The distinction is quite clear, okay, still nowadays. And today, what we have in Saudi Arabia is what I call a multi-option education and training model, okay, where they have, twenty to date 2023, they have 29 public universities, 14 private universities, and 24 private colleges across the country. Plus, okay, they have several scholarship programs, both internal and external. Scholarship programs, of course, at tertiary level. So, this is what we have today in terms of higher education. In terms of distinction between public and private universities, yes, private universities are, in fact, do they belong to the royal family? Yes, usually they do. They are named after princes and princesses and so on. But scholarship systems work for both public and private universities. So, in this sense, there's no
1: distinction. I want to ask you about two big ways in which the Saudi higher education system is very different from pretty much any other in the world. The first is gender and the fact that most universities remain gender segregated. Are there prospects of that changing much in the near future?
2: Well, let's say that gender segregation is part, it doesn't come from religion, doesn't come primarily, I would say, from Islam. comes also from Islam, but it's mainly deeply rooted in the culture where you have this gender segregation, males and females in everyday life in principle, and this is not unique to Saudi Arabia. For neighboring countries, GCC countries, there Sarah, are exceptions in Saudi universities. We have now three co-ed universities. First of all, KAUST, but KAUST is something different because it's overseen by the Ministry of oh, Petroleum Minerals, not with the Ministry of Education. And then, of course, there is the Saudi Electronic University because it's, because of, of its delivery modes, of course, it's correct. And then the big, I think, change was with, with the King Farhad University of Petroleum Minerals because in 2021, they opened some courses to girls as well. Okay. Yes, this is very interesting, I think. Let's say This is, I'm going to give you my... Very personal opinion on this very sensitive, I think, topic. Now with the larger famous Saudi vision, 2030, in 2016, gender segregation virtually disappeared from Saudi society in everyday life. Okay. So no more rules, apart from schools and universities in principle, just to adopt a very pragmatic approach, okay, if they can, if opposites sexes can meet in everyday life, everywhere, what should they push the boundaries to change the situation in schools and universities? What for? Of course, we could discuss this topic, but in terms of organization, okay. Of universities, where they already had separated campuses, separated internships, everything. Why, at least for now, changing things when you can meet the opposite sex everywhere in society. Okay. Interesting. And then, Yeah, then of course, in terms of the methodology, I think, of course, as a Westerner, I think it's better if we have boys and girls together, they can interact and think and work in a different way in classes. But for the moment in Saudi Arabia, gender segregation is no more a problem. So why should people in a way protest or take action or do anything against the situation in the campuses? And by the way, they can connect in so many ways, even inside campuses.
1: So the other big area in which I think Saudi higher education is quite different from nearly every other country is simply how generous it is to students, right? You're not paying tuition fees in public institutions. Almost every student, as I understand it, gets a fairly substantial grant, at least at public universities. I'm not sure how it works at private ones. Now, in most of the rest of the world, poor student finances are blamed for students' inability to focus on their studies and for high dropout rates. And in Saudi, none of that applies. So does that mean that Saudi students are fully focused on their studies and are top-notch scholars? And if not, why?
2: Uh, of course, they are just very average students. I guess there are good students, bad students, like anywhere in the world. I think we, again, we have to think what, or how the Saudi culture and society work. We have a tribal collectivistic society and culture. Where in principle, no one is left behind. Of course, there's also a problem with the social contract in Saudi Arabia. So um, these grants, which are given to, I think all university students in private public universities, in any case, are part of this social contract. So the rulers basically provide best possible welfare to citizens. In some cases, also to just residents in Saudi Arabia, even if they are foreigners. And what they do expect in return for this generous welfare is loyalty, is acceptance of the status quo. And so this idea of, can I say pay or let's say support students, at universities, just part of this big picture of welfare. Okay. So do they need to be better or excellent students just because they are paid to attend university? I don't think so. This is just the way the social content works in Saudi Arabia. So it's nothing like, yes. Why, again, why changing the status quo?
1: So that brings us to this other area here, which is another form of student assistance, which is the scholarships given through the custodian of the two holy mosques program, which was formerly known as the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. Now, this is a a program which sends tens of thousands, and I think at the height, when oil prices were very high, it was sending over 100,000 students a year outside the country to other universities. What's it like being in a system where the government deliberately steers its best students away from its own universities? That must cause a little bit of resentment among domestic universities, doesn't it?
2: Okay, so first of all, as a researcher on the scholarship programs in Saudi Arabia. I think we have to be careful with data, figures, tax and figures and so on. They're tricky because these big numbers from the past, we must say that also included the pandas,
1: those who travel.
2: And it's always quite difficult to get the official figures now and even from the past, from the Ministry of Education. Okay. So we have to rely on news and announcements, but let's be careful, first of all. Secondly, I think we should ask the students, Saudi students abroad now, we should ask the ministry officials from the, of the Ministry of Education. And thirdly, we should ask cultural attachés abroad, how it feels like to be part of this system. And you know what the problem is, again, based on my experience as a researcher, it's difficult to get the answers because they are part of the system. They just enjoy this generosity. Which is really remarkable, especially according to Western standards, European standards. It's dreamy amounts of money. Okay, they are there, well sponsored. Okay, at the best universities and so on, but they don't like discussing the topic. So we should have asked them. But again, researching on scholarships would require more openness from the Saudi system, which is. Granting these scholarships. And mostly, especially, we need transparency from the Ministry of Education, which is traditionally very conservative. You now it's very huge, much red tape, much bureaucracy, a lot of bureaucracy. And it's difficult to, uh, again, to research on the topic and even with the best possible intentions.
1: We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. Okay.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com.
1: And we're back. I want to turn now to the document known as Vision 2030, which is an overarching policy document, which at least in theory drives day-to-day Saudi policy. This document was launched by the current Kings, King Salman and his son, Mohammed bin Salman, often known as MBS, uh, seven years ago in 2016. We don't have to get into all the details here, but the overarching theme of this document expressed in different ways throughout is to spend some of the kingdom's enormous wealth in order to diversify away from hydrocarbons and looking towards a post-oil future. Now, what in theory is higher education's role in this big transition? How does the government see the sector's role?
2: Okay, you said so in theory, Saudi Vision twenty thirty drives Saudi policy. I will say really in practice again as a researcher, because if you research Saudi Arabia in any aspects now, you must read, you must know the contents of Saudi Vision 2030 because it's everywhere. The logo of Saudi Vision is everywhere. It inspires basically all the changes, initiatives, whatever in Saudi Arabia now. When it comes to education, the visual stresses the need to make substantial investments in education and training, which is pretty nature obvious, necessary, I would say, but especially in the tertiary level, because their goal is a, the overarching goal, as you said, is a diversification of Saudi economy. Basically the country needs highly skilled Saudi youth, okay, they need to master the best Soft and hard skills. Better if they are acquired abroad. Okay, for universities.
1: That's explicit that they want the people. Uh, yes, get- they, oh.
2: what they say. The, the vision says that they will keep up the scholarship programs, especially okay. the former class. Yes, they state it very clearly. But also, they say that they want to have more targeted scholarship programs. Okay, if they invest money in the scholarships and they are quite expensive. They want to make sure that first of all, they select the best students, okay? They want to make sure that they select the best universities with those offering those programs that meet the needs of the Saudi labor market. Okay, this is the point. And when graduates go back, they need to be employed to be part of this vision for the, the diversification of the economy. What we expect is that probably let's say massive or really important, remarkable investments in education will continue and including at the tertiary level.
1: You wrote a couple of months ago in University World News about the Two Holy Moss Scholarship and the changing aims under Vision 2030. So specifically, what were the changes that have come into into play in the last few months?
2: Okay. So there are changes at different levels. Now talking about the former CAS, last year they announced a new strategy. Again, with the aim of spending less, spending better, so to say, okay. So we took have highly skilled employable graduates, okay. So they, basically they created a new strategy for tasks and it's all about fostering creativity, apprenticeship, innovation, more qualified research, culture, and so on. Let's say that we have new actors in the scholarship system. In Saudi Arabia, it's not more a job of the Ministry of Education only. We have new scholarship programs. And of course they act under the regulations and directives from the the leaders. But we have sort of collective effort to share the responsibility in creating new scholarship programs where mainly new ministries. Okay. So like, for example, Ministry of Tourism, they had their own scholarships. Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Sport, very active. And they, they have their, they are mainly training programs, okay, to have new resources, okay, to be employed in their specific sectors. And then we have private sectors, entities from the private sectors as well. And they create their scholarship programs too, they're mainly training programs. So the workforce. In terms of quality, slowly, but steadily improving and growing and many resources are being allocated at different levels. And so there are many scholarship programs. They can be internal or external. Many are, for example, I'm thinking of the Ministry of Culture, but also for example, the Alula Scholarship Programs, NEOM Academy, they also send many students, many young people abroad to, to get prepared the specific, according to specific needs of the different sectors that are being developed.
1: Yeah. And so I think what you're saying, or what it sounds like is, although the number of students being sent abroad through the main scholarship program, the scholarship of the two holy mosques, or what used to be called the King Abdullah scholarships, actually there's a lot of new scholarship players. So the total number of students going abroad might be pretty similar. Is that correct?
2: Oh, less students in general. Okay. Okay. Hundreds in different scholarship systems and programs, hundreds per years, which is dramatically less than we, what we used to see in the past with the um, King of Dollar scholarship Program. They are much more focused and targeted. They don't want to waste money. They want to prepare resources. They want to have employable young Saudis, mainly. But they want to be efficient. They don't want to waste money.
1: And okay. so the targeting aspect here is interesting, right? So I think what it sounds like the government is saying is we think we can get more for less if we're better at targeting. But countries around the world have spent decades trying to figure out how to steer their students into fields of study that make sense from the perspective of human resource planning. Why do the Saudis think they can make that work when nobody else has?
2: First of all, because they have that kind of social contract. and. Students, the youth, want to work, they want to be employed, they need to be employed. So the idea is, okay, we have the specific needs. We are developing these very, in a way, new, attractive sectors. Okay. So you want to work in this sector, so you will be well paid, but job is not always guaranteed. Okay. They are not always, jobs are not secured, not all the time. But the youth, like any in any other country around the world, know that they need to work and they need to be skilled and they want to get prepared for this new labor market, for future challenges. They are ambitious. It's a very young nation, a young leader, and they are very assertive on average. Okay. So they are still able to look ahead and say, okay, this is the best thing
1: to do. But let me talk about the broader theory of change here. The idea, it seems to me, and Saudi Arabia is by no means alone in thinking this way, is that they can pursue economic modernization through education. Let's get lots of really smart kids educated here or perhaps more likely abroad. And that's going to give us a much higher level of human capital, all these graduates with all these fantastic skills. But the problem is, somebody has to be there to put those skills into action. You need firms who can employ them properly and drive real diversification. And those firms in Saudi Arabia are are owned by a fairly narrow elite for the most part. And there's been diversification efforts almost nonstop for the past few decades. And the country's economy is still 75% oil dependent. What's going to be different this time? What is it that might help them drive diversification now that didn't work before?
2: I think there are several new elements we see now in Saudi Arabia we have never seen before. First of all, we have a young leadership, and this is completely new from the past. Very ambitious young leadership. Okay, so Grand Prince said in an interview, the sky is the limit. Can you imagine? He's galvanizing his people. And 70% are under the age of 34. So they are super excited. In general, things are moving very fast, changes just for example, we discussed gender mixing. Okay, so that's huge, really change. And then the, this leadership has created new ministries. So we have young ministers, they are globetrotters, they talk to the media all the time. So, something very new in terms of communication we had never seen before. They are boosting national pride all the time. Okay. We are in one nation. We are ambitious. We are in the South division all together. Our country is unique. And so there's a bright future ahead of us. And of course they see a change in global order. Whatever we think of this thing as a Westerners, things are changing. And yeah. They want to have a stay in this new order and they want to compete. They want to be active actors and players. And I think they have the tools to take up this view. Even these few elements provide the new situation in Saudi Arabia. I will have two concerns as a researcher. When I observe, as an outsider, all of this first, I, of course, I believe that education can change a society, especially when it comes to higher education for a number of reasons. Now, when we have these Saudi graduates going back home from abroad, and of course, they feel always express gratitude towards the government because of the scholarships, and they want to become part of this transformation. Problem is that they face red lines. And red lines, you know about these red lines, are firmly there in Saudi Arabia. So, for example, we have PhDs entering. Saudi academia, do they enjoy academic freedom, free exchange of ideas, freedom of expression, freedom to, to publish and say and communicate whatever they want? No, they don't. It's very difficult to work with the Saudi culture Those red lines apply to my research too. And I have to be aware of this. Okay, so this is the first problem. Second problem is that you mentioned films and whatever are they really employable in principle yes and i think that we'll see more during next few years because they are launching new scholarships on a monthly or so basis mm-hmm. and so we need to see what the outcomes okay in the next two three years or so but again as a researcher i haven't found yet a good reliable serious research on the actual impact of past scholarships yes. and probably in the future of new scholarships on the labor market, for example, and on society more in general, because these graduates who had been exposed for years time to other values and cultures go back and they could be a powerful tool of change in their society. If only they didn't have to trace these red lines. And so in terms of change, it remains to be seen if they, by the way, do they want to change the society? Because again, it goes back to the social contract. You are in a very good comfort zone in Saudi Arabia when you are a graduate and you, whichever job you you decide to take up inside or outside academia, you you are in this situation where you are part of this social contract. So you want to be grateful. You want to to respect the red lines, it's more convenient, it's safer for you. You see what I mean? So it's okay. It's we I haven't seen there's a missing link, I call it a missing link, between the scholarship system and change in Saudi Arabia.
1: Interesting. And Lisa, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for being on our show.
2: Thank you very much. For your invitation for having me today. Thank you very much.
1: It just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Sam Pufek and Tiffany McLennan, who would like everyone to know that while she's off to Harvard in a couple of weeks, she will continue working on the podcast from her new haunts in Cambridge. And of course, thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please contact us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us this Thursday for our final podcast of the season, where my guest will be Yale University's Zach Bleemer. He'll be joining us to talk about affirmative action in American college recruiting, The upcoming U.S. Supreme Court ruling on university admissions, and how institutions can continue trying to improve equity outcomes, no matter how the court rules. Bye for now.
0: The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.